Hello, everyone. In today's podcast, I'll be doing a close reading of a Shakespeare soliloquy. This is a different kind of podcast than usual. I wanted to do an extended reading of one soliloquy and thought that it would be better to do this on its own. I've chosen Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy because it's the most famous passage in English literature, certainly, and perhaps all of world literature. And I just wanted to see what would happen if we take it apart and look at its linguistic structure and find out what we can learn about great writing by doing so. In her really great essay, Against Interpretation, Susan Sontag says that the purpose of criticism is to provide, quote, a really accurate, sharp, loving description of the appearance of a work of art. So this is some small attempt to provide that. I want to start with a disclaimer. What I'm about to do is mostly silly. It's a silly little exercise that I think will be illuminating in some ways. That's why I'm doing it. But I want to emphasize that no one could ever fully explain the magic power of this passage or the magic power of any great piece of literature. I do not claim that the following reading is comprehensive or conclusive in any way. This is only one way of looking at a piece of literature. It might not be the best way, but I think from time to time doing something like this could be helpful. Art is magic and it can never be fully explained, but we have to try to explain the parts of it that we can, and so this is one small attempt. To help me with this, I'll be using an online text analyzer. These are very easy to find, free services online, free websites. You just copy and paste the text that you'd like to learn more about, and it will tell you not just the word count, but the number of distinct words, syllable count, number of sentences, lexical complexity, number of syllables, average number of syllables, all of the statistical information that would be rather painstaking for humans to compile. So if you copy and paste this soliloquy, to be or not to be, spoken by Hamlet, into these various websites, you learn several things. There are 259 words in the whole thing, 155 distinct, different, separate words. I think one of the most illuminating things you learn is that the average number of syllables per word is 1.3. We maybe sometimes think of great literature, and Shakespeare in particular, as using extremely long and big and complicated and flowery language. This text analyzer tool has helped us to prove that this is not so. The most famous passage in English literature has an average syllables per word count of 1.3. To emphasize this fact, we also learn that the average number of characters per word is 4.3. So mostly one-syllable words and mostly four-letter words in to be or not to be, or at least an average character count of four characters per word. Already, I think we've learned a great deal. Its language is relatively simple. Most of the words are small and easy to understand and not repeated, and most of the repeated words are monosyllables, right? Words like to and a uh, and the. If you exclude those kind of common words like prepositions and articles, the most common words in this passage are words like sleep and bear and die, all monosyllables. Moving away from this text analyzer, if you just look at this piece of literature, just look at it and describe what you see, channeling the spirit of Susan Sontag, you see that it's made up of lines. And if you count the syllables, you discover that not all of these lines have 10 syllables. We're taught in school that Shakespeare wrote in blank verse, iambic pentameter. We therefore expect all lines to have 10 syllables. Not all of them do. Out of the 33 lines in this passage, only 22 of them have 10 syllables. That's only about 68%. So 68% of these lines follow the pattern or the expectation or the quote-unquote rule 
of iambic pentameter. Some might have nine syllables, some might have 11. In other words, the number of syllables in the next line cannot be accurately predicted. If you guessed that the number of syllables in the next line is 10, you'd only be right two out of every three times. So this is a high enough consistency to establish the sense of a pattern, but I think it's a high enough amount of variation to always keep you on your toes and to prevent that pattern from becoming monotony. This is very, very important to learn. The third thing that we observe is that these lines can be described in terms of pairs of syllables called feet, such as an iambic foot or trochaic foot. Again, we learn that Shakespeare wrote in this very metronomic da-dum, 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 iambic pentameter. So we expect more or less complete regularity. But when we actually look at the feet, the poetic feet in this passage, and count how many of them are actually iams and how many and how many of them are something other than iams, we again find something I think quite surprising. There are a total of 159 feet, poetic feet, 159 pairs of syllables in this passage, out of which only 119 are iambic. Da-dum. Iambic means that they start with an unstressed syllable and end with a stressed syllable. So 74% of this passage is actually iambic. 26% is anything but could be trochaic, could be anapestic, could be spondaic, could be anything, right? Just not iambic. In other words, the number of iams in the next line and how many feet in the next line, how many syllables, can be guessed at with some expectation of correctness, but not totally. They cannot totally be accurately predicted. So to summarize, number one, we've learned that this passage is composed of very basic and simple language that relies mostly on monosyllables and four-letter words. Number two, we've learned that only 68% of these lines have 10 syllables. There's a lot of variation in line length built into the system. Third thing we've learned is that, metrically speaking, there's a relatively equal amount of variation in the meter in how accurately we can predict the metrical patterns that will come in the next line. Number four on my list is sejuras. We notice that some lines have kind of midline pauses pauses created by the end of a sentence or by hard dashes or any other kind of loud punctuation. I look at this passage and I ask myself if the placement of these sejuras can be accurately predicted, if there's some kind of pattern here. And I notice that the placement of the sejuras occurs mostly at or near the middle of a line. For example, devoutly to be wished, pause, to die to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, pause, Aye, there's the rub. Most of the sejuras happen after the second foot or after the third foot, so somewhere after the fourth syllable or sixth syllable of the line. Mostly. But sometimes not. Look at the very first line. To be. Pause. That's a, that's a sejura after the first foot, after the first two syllables. Also, I noticed that there are never more than three lines in a row that have a sejura. So it will go line with sejura, line with sejura, line with sejura, at the most, a three-line streak, and then a line without a sejura, such as the heartache and the thousand natural shocks, or but that the dread of something after death, right? These lines have no midline pause. So in other words, the placement of sejuras can be predicted with some regularity to be at or near the middle of the line, but their frequency, which lines have sejuras, and when you're going to find a line with a sejura, how many lines in a row will have a sejura, this seems more or less random to me. Let's look at punctuation. 
and enjambment. 32 lines in this passage, 19 of which end with strong punctuation. That is to say, they are not enjambed. They end with a period or a comma or a dash. This is 59%. 59% of these lines are end-stopped in some way. The other 41% are examples of enjambment. Enjambment is when the sentence continues but the line stops. So, for example, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows, the sentence keeps going but the line stopped at suffer. And if you look at the consistency or pattern of which are enjambed and which are not, I notice that it's never more than four lines in a row that are end-stopped. But that's pretty much all I can say. Other than that, it looks more or less random, the placement of which are end-stopped and which are enjambed. If I start paying attention now to what the words actually mean, and ask myself if this passage obeys one of the most frequent lessons in creative writing classes, which is that you have to show, don't tell, or no ideas but things, or in other words, appeal to the senses, sensory imagery, right? Does this passage obey that advice? If I count the words that actually contain sensory detail or sensory data or are imagistic in any way, I notice that there are almost no images in this passage. 15 lines out of 32 lines contain no images at all. And out of the 259 words, only about 29 words can be said to appeal to the senses, which is roughly 11%. So some examples of these words that appeal to the senses, words like slings, arrows, sea, flesh, bear bodkin, grunt, sweat, words such as hue or dream or pitch. I'm not sure if I should count those as as images or not. Is the word dream an image? I don't know. On the fence, this is why we can only kind of roughly calculate that the imagistic density of this passage is roughly 11%. But that's a very, very small number. Most of this is abstract language that does not in any way appeal to the senses and is not in any way concrete. I find that more or less shocking. Looking at the verbs, most of these are kind of active and dynamic and vivid verbs. Also, infinitive verbs, the to form, right? To be, to sleep, to die. In 33 lines, there are about 29 such verbs. Take, bear, grunt, sweat, make, sleep, die, wish, say, to take, to be, to sleep, etc. Looking at sonic patterns, we notice that this is perhaps the least surprising revelation. We notice that this passage is rich in sonic texture, that things like assonance, alliteration, consonance, parallelism, internal rhyme, etc. abound. Um, There's It's impossible to calculate exactly how many instances of assonance or alliteration or internal rhyme exist in this passage. The numbers, the math just gets too complicated. But there are rough, I mean, there are, you know, anywhere between three and nine per line, resulting in probably hundreds of little tiny echoes that ripple throughout this entire passage. So to be or not to be, that's one little parallelism. It's also alliteration. It's also kind of an internal rhyme. That is... The question whether tis, so you have that kind of internal rhyme across those two lines, is and tis, nobler in, assonance, the mind, to suffer the slings, to some alliteration, and arrows of outrageous fortune, some assonance with those O sounds, also the R sounds, kind of consonants. Again, we won't go through the whole passage, but it's just entirely enfolded on itself sonically. One thing that I was surprised to discover is that this passage is comprised of six sentences, 
and that they vary only slightly in length. We've talked in previous podcasts about the importance of varying sentence length to create a sense of dynamism or to avoid monotony or to emphasize emotion, to kind of control your passage of writing like a piece of music. The six sentences in this are almost equivalent in length. The first two are declarative sentences, the next two are questions, and the final is another declarative sentence. So we've talked about nine things so far. Number one, relatively simple and basic language, very small words. Number two, semi-consistent line length. 68% of these lines have 10 syllables. Number three, 74% of this poem is iambic, and 26% of this poem varies from that rule or pattern. Number four, randomly placed, mostly mid-line sejuras. Number five, 59% of these lines are end-stopped, and the placement of end-stopped lines is more or less random. Number six, only 11% of this passage is comprised of concrete sensory imagery. 89% of it is abstract language. Number seven, many active and infinitive verbs. Number eight, multiple sonic echoes per line. Number nine, not a huge variation in sentence length, but there is a variation in sentence type between declarative and questioning. What do we conclude? The poem is composed of relatively simple language, small words rarely repeated, organized into semi-consistent formal patterns such as syllables per line, iambic feet, etc. But those patterns are broken as much as possible while still being able to preserve the sense of the pattern. We get a sense of order only slightly overcoming chaos. We get a sense of pattern just barely conquering randomness. I think it's time to read that quote by Yeats that I can't stop reading whenever I get a chance. Yeats says this, The purpose of rhythm, it has always seemed to me, is to prolong the moment of contemplation the moment when we are both asleep and awake, which is the one moment of creation, by hushing us with an alluring monotony, while it holds us waking by variety, to keep us in that state of perhaps real trance. I think Yeats has been proven right here. The formal and linguistic structures of this passage are only regular enough to keep us hovered in this state of trance. They lull us asleep with regularity, and they keep us awake with variation. And the result is this wonderful incantation. The passage becomes kind of magical in its physical effects on the body. This also corroborates an assertion that Susan Sontag makes in that essay against interpretation. She says, I think this is the first sentence, she says, the earliest experience of art must have been that it was incantatory, magical. Art was an instrument of a ritual. I really love this sentence. Art is an experience It is incantatory, it is magical, it is a ritual. It's not really something that we experience only with our consciousness, only with our brains, only cerebrally. I think 74%, you know, to use one of these rough numbers, 74% of our experience of this soliloquy and of any great piece of literature is bodily. That is to say, rhythmic. Sound waves are literally moving through the air and kind of shaking you in 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 a way. So one reason Shakespeare is great is because the form and music and rhythm and structure of his poetry is incantatory and trance-inducing. Notice that I've been talking for about 25 minutes, and we haven't even started to talk about the content of this passage. I haven't even broached the question, what does this mean? 
I often tell students that they can feel free to ignore as long as they want to what a passage means. This isn't to say that what it means is irrelevant or unimportant. I just mean it's not necessarily of utmost importance. I don't think it's how Shakespeare enters the body. I've seen kids' faces held in a state of total rapture while listening to Shakespeare. I myself remember as a teenager going to see Shakespeare plays, being more or less totally lost in the language, at least for the first hour. You know how this is. And yet I could tell I was in the presence of something extremely beautiful. And I couldn't take my eyes off it. Perhaps better to say my ears off of it. But we should talk about the content, because I think the content does matter. If this form of language was identical, but it was a passage about, I don't know, rubber ducks or something, there's no way it would be as famous as it is. So content does matter. What do we notice about the content? Well, we notice that the stakes couldn't be higher. It's about life and death. Should I live or should I die? What's keeping me here in this life? And what's preventing me from voluntarily choosing the next? What question matters more than this, really? I mean, none, I'll say. I also think we notice that this passage is characterized by more or less total ambivalence. The coexistence in one person of contradictory emotions or attitudes. To be or not to be. He doesn't know. Or if he knows one thing is true, he just as fully knows that the opposite is true as well. Right? So no conclusions, or at least very tentative conclusions, or contradictory conclusions are reached. This life is full of slings and arrows and calamity and outrageous fortune. Disprised love, the laws delay, the insolence of office. Right, But the uncertainty that the next will be any better is what keeps us here. So that's a very kind of contradictory or tentative assertion to make. So the second thing we notice is total ambivalence. The third thing we notice is that this passage displays extreme emotions. Hamlet says, "'Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished." You know, he, there's a kind of urgency or yearning or passion, a hunger to know, a hunger to solve this problem. He is extremely vexed. And I think it's the extremity of that emotion that helps make this passage so important and so beautiful and so memorable. Also, if I look at this passage, I notice that Hamlet is more or less speaking only in the first-person plural pronouns. When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. So he's speaking for the human race, and his content is applicable to all humans everywhere. So the content achieves immense and total universality. I also notice that there is an evolution or a shift of thought. It begins with the question, to be or not to be. So he doesn't know. He's posing a question. He takes one side of it, right? It's a consummation devoutly to be wished to die. Then he takes the other side of it. But the dreams of what may come will give us pause. And he keeps going back and forth and back and forth. Eventually he does reach a new, different kind of place. Again, I, I hesitate to call this a conclusion. He does say, thus, it's kind of a key word, thus conscience, he means consciousness, thinking, the ability to think, Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. So thinking so often gets in the way of action. It's a kind of conclusion. He does end up in a different spot from where he began. We're not sure if he thinks that he's right, and we're not sure if he is right, but at least the thought evolves, it changes, it shifts. Thought A becomes thought B. This is important, I think. I also notice, and perhaps this is a repetition of what we highlighted in the formal analysis, but we notice that the meaning of this passage is more or less clear. Yes, it is 
400 years old, and so it, it, it might take some moderate parsing for a modern reader to understand the grammar, etc. But there's nothing hidden in this passage. There's nothing needing to be decoded. Like I say, four-letter words, one-syllable words, you know? This is what Samuel Johnson means when he praises Shakespeare for containing, quote, human sentiments in human language. It's about human feelings in the language that is recognizably our own. It's very clear. I recognize a particular human voice from which this language is coming. Now, I'm going to do a kind of mega summary of the points we've covered, and then I'll just read the soliloquy to end. So I hope what I've presented, again, with the caveat that this is kind of silly and by no means exhausts the importance or magic or complexities or mysteries or importance of this passage, I do hope that I've begun, at least, to present a kind of partial but not a bad start for the ingredients of Shakespeare's genius, and by extrapolation, the genius of any great piece of writing. Number one, its form is incantatory, resulting from a mix of order and chaos, or order just barely overcoming chaos, predictability and variation. Relatively simple language, 32% syllabic variation, 26% iambic variation, random midline sejuras, randomly placed end-stopped lines, 11% concrete sensory imagery, multiple sonic echoes per line, and many active, dynamic, and infinitive verbs. That was all bundled under the formal category. Number two, the stakes could not be higher. It's a matter of life and death. Nothing matters more than this. Number three, lots of ambivalence. The speaker doesn't know. Number four, it displays extreme emotions. Number five, it's universal, so it's applicable to any human everywhere. Number six, it moves or turns. The thought evolves and becomes something that it wasn't at the beginning. And number seven, it's clear. I think if you attempt to write a poem, your own poem, and make sure that you tick all of those boxes, man, chances are that you're going to have at least a good draft to work with. I do not mean to sound like poetry can be written via checklist. It certainly cannot. But again, we have to at least attempt to explain the things that we can explain. And I think this will give any any poet, any writer, a good place to start. So now as I read the soliloquy, all I want you to do is to let yourself be entranced. Think of yourself as one of those early humans around a campfire whose first experience with art was incantatory and magical. And also feel yourself addressed to. This is about you. It's about human sentiments and human language. If you don't understand a particular line or sentence or phrase, don't worry. Let the rhythm of the lines cast its magic spell over you. And let yourself feel personally implicated in whatever lines speak to you the most clearly. Here we go. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, ay, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life, 
For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprized love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pitch and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Thanks for listening, everyone. Coming up in a few days, I'll release the podcast with uh, Ben about a few more Shakespeare soliloquies. We won't dive quite as thoroughly into any as I did now, but that's good. We'll be achieving much more range and breadth and displaying the kind of infinite variety of voice and tone that Shakespeare is capable of. So yeah, until next time, keep reading and keep writing. <laughs>